the technology to program people meant the end of freedom and dignity. Because we now know why people do what they do, the age of human autonomy is over. And now is the new age of programmable people. Because you can be programmed, you're no longer an autonomous, free human. And we have to find a new ethic to replace the value that we place on freedom and dignity. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Dalton Combs, founder of Boundless Mind, formerly known as Dopamine Labs. Dalton has built a company that specializes in persuasion AI, a technology that shapes human behavior. Okay, like I know what you're thinking. iRobot, Matrix, Ex Machina, Terminator, Death, Destruction. Yeah, it seemed like pretty nefarious stuff to me as well. I was curious on two accounts. One, I wanted to see the birthplace of our AI overlords. And two, I wanted to see who was behind such powerful technology. So I went to the Boundless offices in Venice to talk to Dalton. There were a lot of interesting points in Dalton's interview, as you'll hear. But a reoccurring theme of this podcast will be free will and the ability of technology to destroy and cultivate that free will. But before we get too philosophical, let's get into the entrepreneurial time machine and go back to the beginning of Dalton's journey. Even as a kid, Dalton realized there were problems in the world, but he simultaneously realized that he could also be the one to produce solutions. He got to work fixing the world. So I grew up uh, in Laguna Beach. So on the beach in Laguna, there's a little creek. And it's a real pain in the butt to get around. And so when I was 10, uh, I took a bunch of spare lumber from my dad's job site. Uh, I built a little bridge over the creek and I charged tourists to use my uh, makeshift toll bridge. So they that, happy about that charge? <laughs> oh, they were, I mean, they were happy to not have to walk around. So that was my first uh, foray into entrepreneurism. Uh, in high school, I was on the school board the year that they banned uh, soda and candy from campus. <laughs> and like opportunity here. Exactly. Not only, yeah, not only was I the only person to vote against it, I immediately showed up on campus the next day with this heaps of gum and soda and candy. And yeah, that was like a big part of my senior year was yeah. selling all that stuff. Did it go well? Yeah, made money. <laughs> <laughs> all of these have an aspect of, I mean, now the term is social entrepreneurism, right? Where selling soda on campus, it was money but it wasn't good money (laughs) it was mostly done out of a spirit of like righteous indignation i was looking to fix bad policy and just so happened to make money i remember in middle school so they're you know they give these tests and they track you and sometimes you're like at level and sometimes you're above and sometimes you're behind like i got tracked behind on english and i was incredibly indignant about that like and so that constrained like what courses i could take right like because i was put in a specific english course which then, because it was a small high school, meant I had to take a certain history course. Um, And my attitude is very much like, no, fuck you. Like, you don't get to tell me what classes I'm taking. I think that more than being accelerated in math, like being held back in English was a very motivating thing. Dalton sourced his motivation from an obstinate belief that he knew what was best for his intellectual development and his life. Upon this foundation, Dalton built a life saturated with diversions from the status quo. He refused to subscribe to the ideological values of authority and the life roadmap that authority presented to him. The only things Dalton actually wanted to follow were his creative solutions to the problems he came across. When Dalton began to consider college, he realized that the infrastructure of higher education restricted his ability to be autonomous. He was not a fan. 
Even through college, I tried to major in everything. I ended up ma having to make my own major. Were you motivated by school? Like, like, or did you just see like, again, a problem with the school system? And you're like, all right, I need to solve this problem. The way to do that is through this major. When I was in high school, applying to colleges, uh, and I had a specific vision in mind for like the things I wanted to learn. There's basically one thing that would disqualify a school, which was a foreign language requirement. Because I knew that a foreign language requirement for me was going to be a waste of time. Like I knew that was not what I wanted to be working on. The foreign language requirement was sort of a proxy for uh, how permissive the rest of the school was going to be for like letting me do what I wanted to do as far as learning. And when I got to Lehigh, they gave everyone a student handbook, and I found a couple of interesting rules. Uh, one rule was that if you show up on the first day of class to any course and ask to be given the final, you are given the grade that you get on the final for the whole year, which for me was like a really great way to get out of a lot of prereqs. Every class on Monday, I did that. Obviously, this gets flagged by the registrar. And then basically what happened is the prereqs were explained to me, and it was explained to me that uh, basically I wouldn't have to do any of them. So if I stopped doing this, they would waive prereqs. Yeah first mission accomplished. Uh, and then there's a different rule in the rule book that explained like how to make a new major. I think the rule was intended for like if a faculty member wants to set up a new department. And I did that. What was the major called? Biophysics. So I mean, it seems like you just have this like insatiable desire to learn. Like, why? Uh, I place a really high value on optionality. It's almost always, I think, undervalued the fact that some choices you make in life destroy other choices. And some choices like extend your optionality, right? So like going to Lehigh where I didn't have to do a foreign language requirement, that's optionality. It, it was a requirement that I didn't have. Like it was, a, it was a door that wasn't closed. Optionality is a fundamental philosophy for Dalton because optionality creates freedom. Dalton capitalized on this freedom to create his own curriculum at Lehigh, but realized this level of freedom might not continue. As he approached graduation, he realized that the conventional post-grad jobs did not cultivate the freedom he had been accustomed to. Freedom is hard to find in conventional career paths, which is why I think Dalton was drawn to the culture of startups. Right after graduating, I formed a, a startup. This was before the iPhone came out, and... There's a, like an accelerometer inside of an iPhone, uh, and they're called inertial monitoring units. And we founded a startup to use inertial monitoring units to help with stroke rehab. Like what, a, what an IMU could do as far as make the physical world visible to computers, like was very intriguing to me. And then that you could do stuff with that and that you could have a computer that was able to monitor you and like let you know when you were doing things wrong or how you could be doing things better. Like that was, I think the kernel of it was, was that idea of recommendation and yeah, suggestion and yeah, it's like, it's like persuasion, little, little persuasive. What, what, what is the term? It's like persuasive technology or something. Or yeah. Persuasive, persuasive technology. Um, I mean, for me, it, it comes back to, uh, this poem from the seventies called all watched over by machines of loving grace, the sort of techno hippie era. Yeah. A lot of optimism about the ability of computers to do all the hard things, and then humanity has sort of a back-to-nature moment. Um, and I, I find that vision very appealing. Machines of love and grace. I want to dwell on that phrase for a moment. Before starting Rizzo, Dalton realized that he could help the world. But I think this sentiment was unfocused. It was at this moment that a seed was planted. A seed that simply floated the notion that artificial intelligence should be the generous benefactor of humanity. 
Dalton realized that AI has the potential to drastically improve our lives, and the development of this kind of technology is a noble pursuit. Unfortunately, Dalton's first attempt at acting upon the sentiment wasn't a resounding success. Yeah, I mean, we stopped working on Rezo because it wasn't working, like because it was a uh, it was the right idea at the wrong time. Like it was way too early back then. Like IMUs were just too expensive, and the machine learning wasn't sophisticated enough. We were it was just yeah, a vision way ahead of its time. Like it was going so badly that grad school looked like a really good idea. So it was me and him and our prototype hardware and like the laptop that you had to have it plugged into to make it run at the time in a physiotherapy clinic. And the physiotherapist explaining what he wanted it to be able to do and what it would take from a regulatory standpoint for him to be allowed to use it at the physiotherapy center. And like that was a very sobering moment. And that's when we both kind of thought like, okay, this is probably not a good idea right now. Like how were your spirits before that moment? Was it was it like, was it like a, like abrasive kind of like, oh shit, like shit, I didn't even... I didn't know that there were so many red flags. I didn't know there were so many barriers that we had to jump over before this moment. Yeah, no, definitely. Like it was, it was born in a, a moment of like enthusiastic naivete. And, but you know, the whole entrepreneurial experience is that sort of moment of inspiration. And then the question is like, can that moment of inspiration endure uh, all the garbage it has to go through? Failure is tough, especially for someone like Dalton. The same obstinance that is generally a revered character attribute within the startup community can also be a liability when attached to the wrong idea. You have to know when to stop. And coming to that realization is hard. Dalton had to move on. So once again, he returned to the pursuit of knowledge and applied to his PhD. He had taken an interest in the ways technology could be used to influence the brain. So he decided to pursue behavioral science and discover what it takes to program the mind. So the thing that really spoke to me about neuroscience, it was sort of two things. One was the ineffable relationship between the brain and the mind and the relationship between the physical substrate of who we are and the fact that it could be studied and understood like that's crazy. Uh, And I found that super compelling. The other thing was books like nudge had a really big influence on me because they pointed the way towards a applied science of persuasion, which had been verboten for decades to actually talk about applied sciences of persuasion. Why was that? Oh, it's because of Skinner. first person to make serious progress on the applied science of persuasion, like applied behavior change, was B.F. Skinner. So, you know, it's 1931 at Harvard. It's Monday. This grad student hasn't left his house all weekend. And the reason is that he's afraid he's going to die. And if he dies, something will be forgotten, and it might never be discovered again. Because he learned something on Friday that no one had ever learned before and he couldn't tell anyone and he had to wait till Monday till everyone came back to work to tell anyone and so he was terrified all weekend that he was going to die and like this tremendous discovery was going to be forgotten and what it was that he discovered was the basis of modern behavioral science of of modern persuasion of anything that a psychotherapist does with a patient today started with what B.F. Skinner discovered in 1931 and it held tremendous promise because what he discovered was the fundamental technology of what it would take to program a mind. What Skinner did though is he made a really deep philosophical mistake where he told everyone that 
the technology to program people meant the end of freedom and dignity. Because we now know why people do what they do, the age of human autonomy is over. And now is the new age of programmable people. B.F. Skinner shut down research on persuasive technology for 50 years because of a philosophical mistake. And by telling people that because you can be programmed, you're no longer an autonomous, free human. And we have to find a new ethic to replace the value that we place on freedom and dignity. Uh, and he was wrong. What is uh, the right way to think about it? The right way to think about it is that because we know why we do what we do, we're no longer prisoners of our past actions. We can choose to do differently. There's this huge gap between who people want to be and who they are. And that gap exists because I can't reprogram myself at the snap of my fingers. What Skinner discovered is the beginning of a journey where that will no longer be true. It will now be possible to change yourself into whoever you want to be in the easiest way possible. And that's incredibly liberating. It means that we're liberated from uh, the shackles of our primitive psychology. And it's not, it's not the elimination of autonomy. It's a whole new kind of autonomy. Uh, the difference between those two philosophical stances just comes down to who's in charge of designing who I am. Is it me or is it someone else? Skinner thought it would inevitably be a class of technocrats who get to decide how other people are programmed, uh, and he was wrong. It is and should always be in the hands of people to decide who they're going to be. But I think that a world in which people are more able to pursue their own vision of the good uh, is a better world than the world in which we're all more constrained by our evolved psychology. Yeah, it's about yeah. options. It's and about I, think, options. I think a world with more options is better. Right. I think Dalton is very optimistic and has a rosy view of persuasion technology. He believes a more easily programmed mind presents the same optionality that he has been pursuing his whole life. He believes that optionality encourages and cultivates free will, but not everyone shared his optimism. During his PhD, his peers dismissed the idea of free will. Almost no one in academia believes in free will. Uh, free will is a marginal topic, largely because... Most scientists are very bad philosophers. They think they don't have a philosophy and they all have the same terrible philosophy. Uh, and it's a special kind of dead world determinism. It's a kind of philosophy that precludes the existence of consciousness. It precludes the existence of choice. It precludes the existence of free will. It assumes that since the world is just billiard balls, people don't have free will. And like that's this taken as an article of faith by almost all scientists and also by basically no philosophers. Like there's a, there's a huge divide between neuroscientists and philosophers of mind where the vast majority of philosophers of mind think that free will exists and the vast majority of neuroscientists think that it doesn't. And the philosophers are right, largely because the scientists misunderstand what free will is. They think that free will can't exist in a world that has rules, but that's not what free will means. A thing has free will if it wants, but from the outside, you can't quite tell what it wants. But aren't you creating a, a source that opens that box and can, can like see what you want before you know that you want it? Yes. And we shouldn't do that. I think about this in the same way I think about the, the, uh, the fourth amendment. Privacy is important, not just for people who have something to hide, but because it preserves free will. And I think that the most important privacy we have is privacy over our own thoughts. We could choose like as a society to eliminate free will or we can choose to enhance it. 
things like the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution enhance it, things like mass surveillance by states diminish it, and the technologies that brain-computer interfaces enable don't necessarily enhance or limit it. It all comes down to, to applications. When we have precise control over the contents of our own mind, that is either the highest liberation or it's a 10 billion person totalitarian planet. Both of those worlds are open by the possibility of controlling our own minds. So that's why I wanted to study neuroscience. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mystified and horrified by the possibilities. And when I, when I got to USC, I looked at BCI and I played with some of the toys. There's this one thing called a transcranial magnetic stimulator that like shoots bursts of magnetic waves into your brain and causes you to hallucinate or causes muscle spasms, all kinds of crazy stuff from this like direct stimulation of the or indirect stimulation of the brain. What I found most surprising was that the quality of models of decision making and the models of the brain were good enough that in a lab setting, we were really, really good at predicting what people would do. And we were really, really good at knowing how to manipulate the environment in order to change someone's choices. The only reason that couldn't translate out of the lab was because in the lab, we could remove all of the extraneous factors. And what changed was with the rise of the new generation of machine learning driven AI, we don't have to eliminate those factors. We can factor them in and we can create a situation that is as good as the control system in the lab, but out in the wild using AI. That realization that this technology of complete control, we weren't there with the electrodes, but we were there in practice. And that's like what led to the founding of Boundless was this understanding that this technology that enables this highest form of liberation or the 10 billion person totalitarian state was here now. And the norms that we set up around this stuff now are going to be the same norms that we live with when we have direct brain interface technology. And so setting up the norms right now is urgent. Dalton had a wealth of interesting ideas floating around concerning the brain, free will, and the future of consciousness. But he needed a place for all these ideas to incubate, to come together into something tangible. That tangible opportunity arose in an unlikely place, drunk on top of the roof of a frat. I think we were, were both drunk on the roof of his frat, because he was an undergrad at the time, so we were both drunk talking about Norbert Wiener's book, The Human Use of Human Beings and the Importance of Cybernetic Technology. And that was the moment where it's like, okay, we're gonna hang out for a while. And so what, like, when did you realize this is like an idea that we could uh, chase in, in uh, like an entrepreneurial way? And what did that idea look like? What does that conversation look like? Like I spent the first couple years of grad school like looking for a co-founder, like I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but talking to other neuroscientists and talking to other engineers and feeling people out for their, their enthusiasm about different things. And even with a few other people, like talking through concepts for interesting apps or interesting pieces of hardware we could build. And also Ramsey was the first person to be crazy enough to say yes to any of those ideas. And I mean, for a long time, it was just ideating and iterating on garbage like it was like just bad ideas um and bad execution he was a way better programmer than me and he's not a great programmer <laughs> i mean we tried a bunch of things some of it we did through academia uh, like putting in grant applications for a ptsd recovery app and that wasn't like really a free play thing it was just a academic project we we're trying to do and just looking at other ways to apply technology 
the thing that really struck us was the ability to use the algorithms to change people's behavior. With this idea, the idea that human behavior was programmable, Dalton and his co-founder created Dopamine Labs. When I initially heard this name, I kind of got shivers down my spine. It sounded evil, a name steeped in the themes of dystopian science fiction movies, the kind of science fiction that makes you worry about the future of the world. So I asked Dalton about the meaning behind the name. Everything that's good in your life and everything that's wrong with your life is that way because of dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that transmits pleasure and generates wanting. So some lines of Buddhism think that you know the elimination of wanting is the goal, right? That's what we're supposed to be working on. This is supposed to be the human project. And the discovery of the relationship between pleasure and wanting, that pleasure is getting more than you asked for, and when you get more than you asked for, you want more the next time. And like that relationship between pleasure and wanting is what dopamine is all about. Everything that ever feels good in your life feels good because of dopamine. Everything that you destroy your life wanting is because of dopamine. Having settled on a provocative name, Dalton got to work on designing an algorithm that lived up to his thesis, that the human brain could be programmed. But Dalton didn't just have to make something that worked. He also had to find someone willing to apply the algorithms that he was creating to their project or application. Wanting comes from creating a gap between what you expect and what you get. What those original algorithms did is they try to get a feel for what a person's expectations is for an interaction. And then it plays with them in order to generate habit loops uh, in the app. So the first application was getting people to walk more after cardiovascular surgery. And all you have to do to do that is guess at how much someone enjoyed their walk. And then you have to guess at what way of rewarding them would be most likely to generate that prediction error. Now, looking back, I can tell that was a terrible customer. The, the way his business worked is a customer we never should have signed up. Like he stopped using the product because it didn't make sense for the way his business was set up. So essentially it didn't work well the first time. I mean, it worked really well. I've got an enormous effect size. Oh, so then why wouldn't he want to continue? Right. Okay. In a lot of applications, the technology doesn't have to actually be effective. So like he didn't want people to use his app for longer periods of time? It just didn't matter that people used his app for a longer period of time. By the time a customer was figuring out how effective the product was, they were already a customer. So the fact that it worked didn't improve his sales. It didn't make him more money. It didn't do anything for his business. So before you had any clients or before you, you know, got your first person intimate, like what data were you using to train your AI? We were using neural simulations built from first principles. We downloaded a bunch of research and we read it all and we figured out like how to model what's going on inside a brain. We built those models and we played with those models to see how praising or punishing those models would change future behavior. So we, we built our own users. Dalton realized that he had something that worked and he wanted to pursue it. All they needed now was someone else who would believe in their vision, an investor with slightly deeper pockets than their own. Especially early on, it's very much driven by the intuition of the VC, right? There's no numbers to go on. It's just analogy and the gut intuition, which is, you know, a huge problem for the industry because it, it makes the industry racist. It makes the industry sexist um, at that stage because who gets funded then is people that the last generation of entrepreneurs 
or the people who control seed funds, if you are like them, you're more likely to get funded. In some ways, that would be my advice. Help the angel that you're sitting across from see themselves in you. We were two grad students proposing to launch a business that is not the kind of business that grad students launch. This, this software, like the business prop to customers is use this technology and it will improve your engagement, retention, adherence. That's the kind of company that marketing veterans and at scale cloud, like high, high throughput engineers found those companies. That's not a company grad students found. Grad students um, discover an interesting molecule. So I think that was the greatest level of suspicion that we had zero industry experience. I think a lot of investors looked at that and were chagrin. And so the way we eventually did get funded, because yeah, we went out and did the whole circuit, did the Y Combinator thing, did all the LA accelerators, and we just kept signing up more customers. Like we just kept getting more case studies. So we just kept going to meetups and talking to other entrepreneurs. And eventually one of them introduced us to their VC. And then Matt Mazio gave us a bunch of money. Dopamine Labs and what would later become Boundless Mind had finally raised enough money to continue towards the goal of building their dream company. But on the way to raise money, and even at the moment that Dalton was talking to me, there were a lot of ups and downs and a lot of moments close to failure. I was curious to know what some of those moments were and what philosophy Dalton applied to his life so as to motivate him through those tougher moments. I was awesome at wall sets. And I like to think that the reason I'm good at wall sets is because it's nothing but persistent obstinance. All I do to be good at wall sets is refuse to give up. And like that's an analogy that I talk to myself about a lot. Looking at yourself and asking yourself like, is entrepreneurship my, my best life? Um, is like that obstinate persistence. Like that's, that's in my mind the, the, the real trait that separates people because no one has an easy path and the people who win are just, yeah, obstinate. Dalton's entrepreneurial philosophy returns to that idea of obstinance. Obstinance is what fueled him through his early days as an entrepreneur, his college days of learning whatever he wants, and his initial attempts at entrepreneurship. His obstinance seems to be his most valuable asset to fulfill the company mission and to achieve success. To me, it seems like Dalton is approaching success, but I don't think he sees it that way. I don't know if I'm like successful enough yet to tell all of my adversity stories. Like the industry is so perception driven, like it's important to always look invulnerable. And so talking about struggles is like really hard for any entrepreneur because it weakens the perception of other people in your mind. Exactly. It says you have like 118 million people that have, you know, been affected by your technology, right? Mm -hmm. So that seems successful to me. Why do you not think you're successful? And what are you looking for in creating this company? I mean, what I'm looking for in creating the company is fixing what Skinner broke in a lot of ways. I want to make it easy for people to change themselves. That's the whole premise of the company is that people can be empowered to, to change themselves. So if that's your goal, it seems like you achieved that. You made a technology that can change people. So why, why, I don't, I don't understand why you don't see success. Oh, cause the institution, like the company is not unstoppable yet. I think, yeah, maybe all of tech has this thing where there's always, there's always like the next hill to conquer. 
I don't know. I don't know what success looks like. Being invulnerable is hard, especially when you're trying to have a moral compass. This technology is powerful. And I wondered how Dalton handles inbound requests from certain companies that could pervert Dalton's technology. I think morality is an important consideration because this technology has the potential to addict users to behavior that isn't in their best interest, but rather is exploitative. Our customers make money when their users change their behavior. And that can be a really toxic relationship between a customer and a user if the company wants something different than what the user wants. And so what we do is we make sure that everyone we work with has really good value alignment between the customer and the end user. When someone calls up asking to use the product or someone signs up on the website, the sales team will run down a list of questions to figure out if this is a, a good sales lead. This is called lead scoring. It's very industry standard for every SaaS company. Uh, and what we do is we've added onto that to score for ethical alignment. And so there are three parts to it to look and make sure that when the customer wins, the user wins also. Have you had to turn down companies? Yeah, horse betting. So there's a company that they, you, can, you can bet on horses through the app. And yeah, they wanted to get people addicted to smartphone gambling. So that was a hard no. Toxic industries don't make a lot of money. They're peripheral. Even, even gambling, these are not main industrial staples of the country. The vast majority of the time, companies want nothing more than to give customers exactly what they want. In an effort to look invulnerable to investors, I think Dalton created a dissonance within the boundless marketing. On one hand, Dalton preaches cultivation of free will and pushes people to take back control of their behavior. And there are some satellite apps that Dalton has created to help people do exactly that. But the bulk of the business, and especially the language of their website, seems to take the opposite stance. Language like, the brain is programmable. You just need the code. And we build products that build people. Boundless's technology changes people's behaviors, beliefs, and being. That last word stands out to me. Being. It implies that the essence of who you are can be controlled by an algorithm. Kind of creepy, right? So I asked Dalton how he reconciled these stances and this ideological juxtaposition. So the two-faced marketing, there's like the mission and the product, right? From the outside, the, the marketing for them looks very different. Skinner wasn't wrong that we're programmable. Facebook is not incorrect in that these techniques are effective. The larger movement that we're trying to wake up in people is to celebrate these technologies and that behavior change and machines that understand us is good news. Uh, and we stand behind every customer that uses the main enterprise product. Uh, the reason the enterprise website looks the way it does is because that's how our customers talk. Imagine the most virtuous app developer you can, L literally a meditation app. You walk into that corporate HQ and everyone there is very purpose-driven about helping liberate people and like helping people get to know themselves better. Somewhere in that building is the head of growth. And when they read the copy on that website, they love it because it's written to speak to that person whose job is in the midst of all of that liberation to think about, okay, but how do I grow the org? And there definitely is like an experience that people have of looking at the website and like having a revulsion. The goal of that site and the goal of the copy on that site is to drive sales inbounds so that we can filter out the customers we want to work with. The goal of that website is not to promote the mission. The goal is to always have everything we build be driving the user to become who they want to be. Today, that means only working with customers that have good alignment, 
right? Which is like a rough and ready measure for like if an enterprise customer has good alignment with their users, then their app is going to turn them into someone they want to be. With a rosy view of this technology and a vision that looks at the best outcome, Dalton sees a bright future for Boundless Mind. Boundless is the behavior layer of the internet. So it is going to be in every application in which understanding or changing people's behavior is important. It's going to be an institution in which users express who they want to be. And through that institution, through Boundless, when the user announces who they want to be, Boundless reaches out into all of the places it's installed and it reconfigures the world to turn that person into who they want to be. That's what Boundless is building towards being so ubiquitous that a user can announce to Boundless who they want to be and their whole world reconfigures to accomplish that for them. With that roadmap, I ended our interview asking Dalton what advice he had for you guys, the people listening to this podcast. The advice I would give to people is know what you want out of life and make sure that you're getting it. Purpose and all value in the world stems from serving other people. Whether the way that you serve the world is through enterprise and as an entrepreneur or the thousand other ways that you can serve the world. Just remember that both literal purpose in life and the sensation of a purposeful life comes from serving other people. And that is the crux of entrepreneurship. It's the crux of any purpose-driven life. Um, And your endeavor will work to the degree that you build it to serve other people. Dalton has always been obstinate. He always believed in his vision. This obstinance has led Dalton to where he was during this interview, a funded startup changing how humans interact with technology. There were a lot of tough moments for Dalton and a lot of philosophical and ethical questions he had to ask himself. But it seems like Dalton has come out stronger and more sure of himself. And there's proof. Just a few months ago, Thrive Global, founded by Ariana Huffington, acquired Boundless Mind to aid in their mission to unlock human potential and shape technology for the good and create healthy habits within the human race. Dalton finally found a partner that had good intentions and knew how to use his technology to execute on those intentions. Together, Boundless and Thrive are combating modern illnesses. Increasingly, the diseases that are killing us today are not the physical contagions of 100 years ago. Now, they are diseases of the mind. They are chronic conditions like anxiety and depression that are caused by behavior. And now this partnership between Boundless Mind and Thrive will help to improve the world, one behavior at a time. I think B.F. Skinner would be proud. Hey, this episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Dharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music. Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast. My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this podcast. 